I write over the book of Judges, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That's Proverbs 14.34. You have in the book of Judges a philosophy of history, and a philosophy of history which has been followed down through the centuries. Isaiah comes to it also, and we're going to see it in this book as we get into it. Now, this book apparently, the book of Judges, it records a period between Joshua and also the first king that came on the scene, which was Saul. And it was a period in which Judges ruled. And you have here this particular period that's given to us. And the reason I say that this was written in that period is because I think about four times here in the book of Judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Evidently, it comes from the time when there was a king, and it looks back to the time when there was no king in the land. I think that is obvious there. And I believe that the verse that we'll have to refer to more than any others, the last verse in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Every man did his own thing in that day. And it wasn't good, friends. The book of Judges is a book that will give to us a philosophy of history. I think that is one of the great purposes of the book. And we'll see that as we get into it. We have, for instance, I think a twofold purpose that the book serves. First of all, as to the historical purpose, it records the history of the nation Israel from the death of Joshua to Samuel, the last of the judges. And he, of course, was the first of the prophets. And it bridges the gap between Joshua and the rise of the monarchy under Saul. There was no leader to take Joshua's place, actually, in the way that Joshua had taken Moses' place. And this was the trial period of the theocracy after they entered the land. Now, the second, I think, purpose is a moral purpose. It is the time of the deep declension of the people as they turn from the unseen leader and descended to the low level of, well, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that's the last verse that you find in this book. And we find how different it is from the first verse that opens this book. And I'll read the first verse. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? They turned to the Lord at the death of Joshua, but that didn't last long. And you find them, by the time you come to the end of the book, they have gone to the very low plane of every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. Every man was doing his own thing. And friends, when that comes about, 
Well, look around you today and you'll see what I mean. Why are we in such a low level as far as morality is concerned today? Well, because every man's doing that which is right in his own eyes. And there's no lofty purpose or lofty goal in view. Now, this actually should have been a period of glowing progress and success. But it was a dark day, actually, of repeated failure. You see, the children of Israel entered the land of promise with high hopes and exuberant expectation. And you'd expect these people who were delivered out of Egypt, led through the wilderness, and brought into the land with such demonstration of God's power and direction to attain a high level of living and victory in the land. But such was not the case. They failed ignobly and suffered miserable defeat after defeat. And we'll see here a philosophy of history. And you'll find that, and I think I should turn to that now. In the second chapter, at verse 11, here's their story. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Now, you have here an old wheel of prophecy. I call it the hoop of history. And it begins with this nation serving God. Then we have these steps downward. They did evil in the sight of God, and they served Balaam. And then we're told, verse 12, they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, and they followed, we are told here, other gods, gods of the people that are round about them, bowed themselves unto them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now they forsook the Lord, and what happened? And served Baal and Ashtaroth. Now the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And now the next step, he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoil them. And then the next step, he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, and they could no longer stand before their enemies. And then they spent a time of servitude. And then what happened? Well, they cried out to God in their distress and in their sad plight. And when they cried out to God, they then turned to God, and they repented. And then God heard their prayer, judges were raised up, he delivered them, and then you have the nation again at the top of the hoop, and they're serving God. And then what happens? Same old story. They did evil, they forsook God, they followed their own pleasure, they were sold into slavery, there was a period of servitude, they cried to God, they turned to God, they repented, judges raised up, delivered the nation serving God again. They're at the top. Uh-oh, here they go again, did evil. And my friend, the old hoop just turns over and over and over. And you can follow right through the Bible, that hoop. And it's true today. The old bromide, history repeats itself, friends, is true. It's absolutely true. And this is the cycle of history that we're looking at. That's the reason we call this a philosophy of history. Now, when you get over to the book of Isaiah, we're going to find again that book opens with God giving 
this philosophy of history. And the way Isaiah puts it is quite interesting. He starts off again that there are three steps that every nation makes that goes down the drain. And what are those three steps? There is, first of all, spiritual apostasy. Then there is moral awfulness. And then third, there is political anarchy. And that's the last stage of any nation. You find that in the first chapter of Isaiah, and we'll see it when we get to that, of course, and that'll be quite a while yet. But this is something that you'll find that has been true down through the history of mankind. And I'd like to give you a quotation from General Douglas MacArthur along this same line. Will you listen to him if you want to know how up-to-date the book of Judges is in this day of gathering storms as the moral deterioration of political power spreads its growing infection? It is essential that every spiritual force be mobilized to defend and preserve the religious base upon which this nation was founded. For it has been that base which has been the motivating impulse to our moral and national growth. History fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There has been either a spiritual reawakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration leading to ultimate national disaster. Same thing, way back in the book of Judges, you have this philosophy of history that is given. Now, what did God do? God raised up judges to deliver his people when they apostatized and cried to him in their misery. And these judges ruled between Joshua and Samuel, by the way. And the book takes its name from these men whom God raised up. They were judges. They exercised their ministry, some of them in a local and restricted area, and that is true of most of them. But all the judges were themselves limited in their capabilities. In fact, each one seemed to have some defect and handicap, which was not a hindrance, but became a positive asset under the sovereign direction of God. None of them were national leaders who appealed to the total nation, as Moses and Joshua had done. The record is not continuous, but rather a spotty account of a local judge in a limited section of the nation. Now, with that in mind, let's come to chapter 1 here. And you will find in this chapter here that there are nine of the twelve tribes mentioned, and they're all mentioned in their failure. And the three that are not mentioned are Reuben, Issachar, and Gad. And I assume that they likewise failed. Each tribe faced a particular enemy, and at no time was the entire nation engaged in a warfare against any particular enemy. You see, the weakness of the tribes is revealed from the very word go. Now, notice this. We are told that at first here, they asked the Lord what they were to do and who will go for them against the Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites were well entrenched in that land. 
they hadn't been driven out. And they were a thorn in the side of Israel during the reign of Saul and during the reign of David. Now, will you notice as we read on here in verse 2, And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. In view of the fact that the Canaanite nation, for the most part, was in the land allotted to Judah and to the one that became his sidekick, if you please, Simeon. And we're told in verse 3 something that reveals the innate weakness of this nation and of the tribes. Listen at verse 3. And Judah said unto Simeon his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. Now, you say, well, how is that a sign of weakness? It looks like a fine sign of cooperation. Well, that part I'll agree with. But it was real weakness, very frankly, for Judah to ask another tribe to help them drive out the Canaanites in their own particular land. They should have been able to do it themselves and should have gone out to do it themselves. And as a result, why... They never were totally driven out. We find in verse 4, And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites, the Perizzites, into their hand, and they slew of them in Bezek ten thousand men. Now you would think that after this first step, that the people in Judah would be now confident, and that God would deliver it into their hands. Now we're told in verse 9, though, and afterward the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain and in the south and in the valley. And Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron before was Kerjif Arba. And they slew Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. And from thence he went against the inhabitants of Deber. And the name of Deber before was Kerjif Sefer. That means it was a city of books, by the way. It was the library. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kerjif safer and taketh it to him will I give Aksah, my daughter, to wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, to wife. Now, somebody's going to say, well, you've made the statement there's a weakness in each one of the judges. It looks like Othniel does pretty well. Now, very frankly, Othniel is the best of the judges in my judgment. But there is this sign of weakness. Why was he chosen here as the judge at this particular time? Why was he the one? Why well, he was the son-in-law of Caleb. And you have this awful thing here of nepotism. You have this business of it's in the family. And if he hadn't been the son-in-law of Caleb, Caleb was well known. He was one of the two men that came out of Egypt that entered the land. He and Joshua, he was probably known just about as well as Joshua was known. And very candidly, Othniel would never have got the position as a judge 
if he hadn't been the son-in-law of Caleb. If he'd been the son-in-law of Joe Doakes, he wouldn't have been elected a judge, never been chosen for that. That's quite interesting, you see. How many men today occupy a position not because of the ability that they have or because of the fact that they have the capability, but simply because of a position that might be due to a relationship or to a circumstance. You know, Napoleon actually was called a man of destiny. And he very frankly said that you not only have to have the man, but you have to have the point in history. In other words, if Napoleon had lived 50 years ago, even today nobody had ever heard of him. It takes the man and the circumstance. And Othniel is a judge. Why is he a judge? Well, because his father-in-law happens to be Caleb, and that's the way that he came into this position. Now you have, in this chapter 1, nine of the twelve tribes that are mentioned, and they're all mentioned in connection with failure. Verse 21, now we've had Judah and Simeon. Here's little Benjamin. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. But the Jebusites dwelt with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem under this day. That is the day that Judges was written. And we find that it was something that persisted in each one of the tribes, by the way. We find in verse 27, "...neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean." Verse 29, "...neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer." Verse 30, "...neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron." Verse 31, "...neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko." And then verse 33, "...neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh." And verse 34, "...and the Amorites forth the children of Dan into the mountains. They had not suffered them to come down into the valley." And they chased Dan up into the hill country up there. May I say to you, friends, they are in the promised land. God has given it to them, but not one tribe apparently was able to lay hold of the land that God had given unto them. And what a tragic thing that it was. You have here chapter 2, and I'll just lift out, beginning at verse 1, two or three verses. "...and an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and it brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers." And I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. Now, I believe again the angel of the Lord hears none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars. But ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And, of course, that's what happened. Then we have this philosophy of history, that little hoop of history that I gave you. And if you have our notes and outlines, you do have that chart that we have there of this hoop and the philosophy of history. 
Now you have God raising up now judges for these people. Verse 16, "...nevertheless the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoil them." In other words, each time that the nation Israel hit the bottom, why, God raised up judges unto them. Now we have in chapter 3 then, and I'm moving right along here, we have the era of the judges. And we find in chapter 3 that the children of Israel have intermarried with the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Electritelites. Believe me, they've married into all the tribes, and God had forbidden it. Verse 1, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel. By them even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before they knew nothing thereof. And now they're given here, the five lords of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites. And we'll find as we proceed through the Bible, the Old Testament, these enemies will occur again and again, and they were indeed a thorn in the flesh of the nation Israel. Now you have actually the first apostasy now, and will you notice it? Verse 5, the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Verse 6, and they took their daughters to be their wives, gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, forgot the Lord they God, and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into slavery. Now, who was the first judge? Verse 9, And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, if he hadn't been a younger brother, you see of Caleb, married his daughter, you'd have never heard of Othniel. But notice, now God will use him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel, and went out to war. And the enemy was delivered in his hands, and the land had rest forty years, and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. Now, here is your first judge. He's one of the better judges. I think probably the best judge that they had. And what is the criticism of him? Well, no great criticism. The only thing is, he was not capable in himself. He did not become the leader because of his outstanding ability, but because of who he was, the younger brother of Caleb, and also married his daughter. So Othniel is the first judge. And it's amazing what kind of men that God will use. Maybe it's the reason he'll use you and me. This book will certainly encourage you, friends. All of these judges are little men. There's not a big one actually in the lot. And these men were used of God because actually they were, well, I have to say it, they were characters, odd characters, by the way. And the very oddness caused God to use them. And he was unable to use them because of that. Now, Othniel belonged to a good family. 
fact, the best of the lot, by the way. Actually, Caleb, I feel, was one of the great men that you could put along with Moses and with Joshua. I'm sure of that. And we have already, of course, seen his story. But now he had good antecedents. He came from a very fine family. Here he occupied this position. And then we find that the Lord actually called him, as we saw. And not only that, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. We're told here in verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. This man had a lot going for him. There was no glamour connected, though, with him. Nothing spectacular. It just says here, "...and the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died." <laughs> That's all it's said about him, by the way. Most biographers are very much like that. They have a difficulty. I met a man on the streets of Los Angeles many years ago who wrote, by the way, several fine biographies of Christian leaders of the past. And he was writing on a present-day Christian leader. And I was asking him how he was getting along. He said, I'm having difficulty. I said, what is it? Well, he says, to keep the front page from rubbing against the back page. He says, there's nothing to say about it. And it's very difficult to keep the birth and death apart. I think most tombstones have it accurately. Here lies Joe Dokes, born, died. That's his story. I heard of this being on the tombstone of a dentist. It said, given his name, a dentist, filling his last cavity. Well, that's about all you can say about not only dentists, but the rest of us. But you notice God came upon the simple life of this man, and that is something that is very much worthwhile. And we find that here you have an ordinary man. His only claim to greatness is his relative of Caleb. Now we come to another man here at verse 12. And let me begin reading. The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And here goes our hook rolling down through history again. They were serving God. Then they did evil and first of God. God delivered them into servitude. And what happened? Verse 14, "...the children of Israel serve Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years." Now notice, "...but when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord..." Here we go again. We're starting up now on the hook. "...they cried unto the Lord." What happened? The Lord raised up a deliverer. Who is he? Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. Now, this is a good one for you, friends. The only thing this man had that was going for him, he was a southpaw. He was left-handed. He might have been a good pitcher today on one of the major league teams. But in that day, they didn't have major league teams. And he was a man left-handed. And by him, the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, I want you to see this here. It's a brutal thing that took place, and I offer no explanation for it. This man here is actually named means red hair. 
He's a red-headed, left-handed fellow. And the act that he performed, it lacks the heroic or the romantic. In fact, a hero doesn't become a hero like it did here. Well, here's the story. He was to go over and take a present to Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it upon his raiment, upon his right thigh. Now, don't mess that. You see, he's left-handed. He reached over on his right side to pull out that dagger, you see. Well, in that day, when they searched anybody, they just looked on the left side because everybody was right-handed. I mean, very few people left-handed. And so when they searched him and notice what happens here when they did, he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. Here's a big fat king now. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, Now, he delivered the present, those with him, but when he started back, he left the delegation that came back with him, and he pretended he had a secret errand unto the king. And he did, by the way. It was quite a secret. I have a secret errand unto the old king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. He said, I have a very secret message for you. And the king thought he was going to hear something, you know, that really was secret. And he sent everybody out. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat, and Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade, so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Now, friends, here's just about as bloody a thing as you can look at, and it's not a very pretty thing. These are the days of the judges. And this man now, a left-handed man, went in with a secret. What do they do? Why, they search him. You know, the secret service of that day, they went down his left side, and there wasn't any dagger there, but he had it on the other side. And so he took it out at the convenient moment, and he plunged it into this big fat man. And what happened? Why, the dagger was just covered by the fat of the man, you see. And, well, he stuck him, friends, like you would a pig. It wasn't a cowardly act. It took courage to do what he did, and he did it almost by chance because it would have been very difficult for a right-handed man to have got in there and have done this, you see. But you wouldn't quite call this the heroic way of doing it, would you? I'm sure that we'd think of another way. Well, notice what you have here. Then Ehud went forth through the porch, shut the doors of the parlor upon him, and locked them. When he was gone out, his servants came, that is, the servants of the king here, came, and they waited around. They didn't want to go in without the king calling them. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked. They said, Surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. In other words, he's taking a nap doesn't want us to disturb him. 
and they tarried till they were ashamed. They just kept thinking he'd wake up, and he didn't. And they waited until it was really embarrassing. And what happened? Well, they finally took a key, they opened them, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarters and escaped into Serath. Now, while all this time was going on, it gave Ehud an opportunity to escape and get beyond the land of Moab, where they could reach him. And in verse 27, it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he before them. And he said unto them, Fall after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him, took the fords of Jordan toward Moab, and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lust and all men of valor. And there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. Now Ehud was the judge God raised up. And he had very little ability. In fact, I can't find anything he did. Other than this, he just happened to be left-handed and gave him a marvelous opportunity to get rid of the man that was bringing all of the tragedy into the lives of the Israelites. And he was the instrument God used. Now, I know that a great many people say, well, that was a bloody thing that he did. Sure wasn't romantic and wasn't heroic in any way whatsoever. But it accomplished the purpose. And God oftentimes uses this method to cut out a cancer of sin to save the body of the people. The thing is that it saved probably, because of this, thousands of lives. Now, a great many people are going to say, well, our civilization would not permit this. You couldn't say that because of the fact we dropped an atom bomb, you will recall, kill women and children. That is something that has apparently happened in South Vietnam. War is an awful, terrible thing. And the thing is, it delivered Israel, and it saved the lives of multitudes. But the supreme accomplishment was the fact that the only talent the man had, he's left-handed. He was a southpaw. Now, isn't that unusual? You remember William Carey was a cobbler. Dwight L. Moody had no formal education. Some folk down in Orange County let me have a cassette tape of the voice of Dwight L. Moody from a record that they had. He had a wonderful voice. I'd never realized that before, and I've seen pictures of him, and I never would associate the voice with the man. But he had no really formal education, yet he certainly sounded like he did. And you see all these J.C. Penney stores. Did you know he was the son of a preacher? And when his father died, the church in that day didn't provide a pension for the preacher's widow. And this boy, J.C. Penny, he went out and gathered up washing, and his mother took in washing. And he used to say when he did it, someday I'm going to grow up, and when I do, I'm going to make money, and I'll take care of my mother, and I'm going to take care of poor preachers and poor preachers' widows. Well, there's a place down in Florida named for Penny and only 
retired preachers and widows of preachers can live there. He carried through what he said he was going to do. I may end up down a place like that, I don't know. And Dr. G. Camel Morgan, when he preached his first sermon at a church, the committee met and turned him down. They told him they didn't think he could ever become a preacher. I'd sure hated to have been on that committee. And I used to hunt on the Brazos River with a rancher, a man who had made money in oil, and he told me how, as a young fellow, he'd gone out and taken this claim way out in West Texas. He said nobody would have had that land. It was so bad and the weather so rough, he had to move his wife and daughter and son into town. And then he'd sleep at night on a saddle blanket and a slicker over him and just make a trench around him, let the water run off. My friend, may I say that he told me this. He says, people think that I was lucky to hit oil on that land. But he said, I prayed that if God would only some way enable me to keep it and enable me to make money, I'd use it for him. That man, a great many people did think he was lucky and he had the oil money. But did you know he started a fund that just supported quite a few missionaries down in South America. You know, God can use you if you want to be used, friends. You can bake a cake. Uh, or maybe you're just left-handed today. God can use you. Then we have another judge here that concludes this chapter, Shamgar. And you notice only one verse about him. It says, After him was Shamgar the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines six hundred men with an ox goat, and he also delivered Israel. Now, it's not the man here, but the method that he used. He used an ox goad. And that's a pretty crude instrument. And the reason he did, they just didn't have iron weapons among the Israelites. And he was short of any polished kind of an instrument or the latest thing for delivering his people. So he just used that which he had was an ox goad. He knew how to use it. That, you know, which goaded the oxen along. But he certainly knew how to use it. And I hear today people say, Oh, you know, we must use the best methods. Well, I agree with that. That's fine to have good methods. But friends, what about the message? You know, it's wonderful to have airplanes today for missionaries. I've always thought that is fine. I've been for it. But when the missionary gets to the field or where the airplane takes him, is he giving out the Word of God? That's what I want to know. You know, you can call today long distance between Maine and Texas, but what about the message that goes over the line? Television is a wonderful thing, but notice how it's prostituted today. And what about radio, by the way? I think it's a great thing. And jet planes are wonderful, but are they carrying messengers for God? And are they giving the message? You know, an ox goad can be dedicated to God if it's in the right hands. Remember that God used the jawbone of an ass. He used the rod of Moses. He used the slingshot of David. And all Dorcas had was a needle and thimble. And there was a little boy that only had five loaves and a few fishes. And James and John, they had some fishing nets. And Simon Peter had a boat. But there's all put in the hands of God. And friends, what you got, if you put it in his hands, he'll use it. I think of these three men that are mentioned in this chapter 
as three little men plus God. And this encourages me, if God used men like this, he may be able to use you and me. Now we have in chapter 4 one that's quite interesting indeed, by the way. We have here a mother in Israel. It's Deborah. Let me begin reading verse 1. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron, and twenty years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Now, notice what happened. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And I always think, instead of Deborah being the wife of Lapidoth, Lapidoth is the husband of Deborah. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali, and of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. Now notice Barak. And the thing, of course, that's more interesting than anything else, here's a woman that's going to become a judge. Now, Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I'll go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I'll not go. And if there ever was a sissy, here's a general that's a sissy. I can't think of anything that's more sissy than this. Here's a man that actually he should be out there in the battle. And yet he won't go to the battle without first having her go along with him. He said, I'll go out and fight provided you go with me. He wanted to hide back of a woman's skirts. No wonder that God had to use a woman in that day. And we can talk a great deal today about women's rights, you know, and this women's movement to get equal rights. Well, what about their responsibility? I think a man's gift makes room for him, and so does a woman's gift. Now we have here that she said, I'll surely go with thee. My, I tell you, she's a forthright woman who, as we shall see, wanted deliverance for a people. Now we find that he calls together the hosts, and they get ready to go against the enemy. And they go against the enemy, and God gives them the victory. Verse 16, But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the hosts under Harasheth of the Gentiles, and all the hosts of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Howbeit Sisera fled away, on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in, fear not. And he turned in unto her into the tent. She covered him with a mantle. And then I tell you, she took a tent pen and let him have it, friends, and got rid of him. 
these two women, quite outstanding here, but Jael was a Gentile, and she really treated him nice, rolled out the red carpet for him, but then she took a tent pin, and she really let him have it, and she killed him. And that actually brought a great deliverance for Israel. And then Deborah sang a song here in verse 1 of chapter 5. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, saying, And now we'll look at the song, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves. And then we hear, Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes. I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. And then we read, Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped, the clouds also dropped water. The mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai, from before the Lord God of Israel. This is very poetic, to be sure. And she was actually not looking for a job at all. She very frankly confesses that she was a mother in Israel. And the very fact she took the leads, no reflection on her. She was God's choice. History affords, I think, many such examples. There was Zenobia, queen of Palmyra. There's Joan of Arc, Molly Pitcher, the Battle of Monmouth. But the reflection here that God raised up this woman, and very frankly, she was one of the outstanding judges. Of course, none of them were outstanding, but she, I think, far exceeded Othniel in ability. And it's an evidence of decline, however, when women come into positions of authority. It's not a reflection on womanhood, but the reflections on manhood when womanhood takes the lead. It's actually a sign of weakness, a sign of a flabby age. Now, we've already seen this weak-kneed general. He was a sissy, and he wanted to stay way back of the lines. In fact, he wanted to stay back at home. And he did not want to get out at all. And she had to agree to go with him before he was willing to assemble the army and go to battle against the enemy. I heard Dr. Harry Ironside many years ago tell the story about the woman that was preaching in a park up in Oakland. And he and one of his brethren friends went by. And this friend of his deplored the fact that there was a woman preaching. And he went on to say, it's a shame that a woman gets up and preaches like that, that she shouldn't be doing that. Well, Dr. Ironside said, I agree with you, it's a shame, but not that a woman's preaching, but that there's not a man to take her place. Regardless of what you might think, and I know I may sound like a square, especially in this day of women's rights, and I made this statement, as far back as 1948, America is paying an awful price for taking women into defense, making waves and wax, and women in industry. And we will pay a price. We'll have a backwash of immorality. 
Well, we did, didn't we? I'm no prophet. I don't claim to be that, but certainly it came to pass. And first there was an epidemic of women shooting their husbands, deserting their children, committing suicide, and dope peddlers. And very candidly, we hear today about different things being a menace of this country. There are those that say inflation is. Others say communism is. Well, I'd like to add one. I think that the home is the place today where the greatest danger is. And that's the place where woman has a part. Now, I want you to notice that this woman, Deborah, actually, she didn't want to do this. Jabin was king of the Canaanites, and God sold Israel into slavery to the Canaanites. And when the time of deliverance came, Barak commanded the army, and he didn't want to go into battle, but God promised victory, and it was ignominious for Barak. After the battle, there was a great victory, and Deborah and Barak sang a song. It was composed by Deborah, and it's a mother's song. It's one of the first songs in the history of the race. We've seen several before, and it's one of the most important, and it was a very dark day. Notice now what they say here, verse 6, "...in the days of Shamgar..." Remember, he was the judge that used in Oxgode, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied and the travelers walked through byways. The inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel until that I, Deborah, rose, that I rose a mother in Israel. Now, notice it was a day of lawlessness. It was a day of grave immorality. There was corruption in the government. And it says that it wasn't safe to walk the highways. They were unoccupied, and the travelers walked through byways. They wouldn't take the main route. And we're hearing so much today about women don't dare walk the streets. Well, this woman, Deborah, she heard all of that in her day, that it wasn't safe to travel because of the lawlessness that existed in that day. Then she mentions the fact that there were no leaders. The inhabitants of the village ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, rose, that I rose a mother in Israel. The rulers ceased. There was a lack of leadership. There's no great man at all. And she was a mother. She had a mother's heart. Very candidly, she did not want to take the lead. But there wasn't any man to take the lead. How tragic it was. And very candidly, she wanted something better for her boy than grass and hippieville and dope and marijuana and modern music. She wanted something better for her children than that. And therefore, she became a judge in Israel. She stepped out and took the lead. And it was the day when the nation had denied God, actually. Listen to this. They chose new gods. That's verse 8. Then was war in the gates. Was there a shield of spear seen among 40,000 of Israel? Now, they denied God, just as they do today. Only that day, instead of denying him and becoming atheists, they became polytheists. They began to worship idols and everything else. And think of the multitudes today that are living without God. And she said she didn't want her boy to come up like that. 
That's the reason Deborah stepped out as she did. And we, you remember after World War II, the promises and the hopes that this country had, we thought, my, we're going to have peace now and we can all live in peace and sin. And it'll be nice. They forgot to read the psalm where the psalmist says, peace and righteousness have kissed each other. Friends, they don't even speak to each other today. I don't think they even know each other. The peace and righteousness. But it's peace and sin. And that's what we wanted after World War II. And we wanted to live very comfortable. Quite interesting. God didn't let us. And he didn't let these people. And the very interesting thing, though, they had a lack of defense. Nothing to meet the enemy. You notice what she says here? Then was war in the gates. Was there a shield, a spear seen among 40,000 of Israel? Well, they just didn't have any at all, any help at all. Now, will you notice this woman, she says, My heart is toward the governors of Israel that offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless ye the Lord. She said, Wasn't all 100% bad. There were godly rulers, godly men, and this woman wanted them to know she gave them her support. It was the godless crowd that she rejected. And then in verse 10, she says, Speak, ye that ride on white asses, ye that sit in judgment and walk by the way. They that are delivered from the noise of archers and the places of drawing water, there shall they rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord, even the righteous acts toward the inhabitants of his villages in Israel. Then shall the people of the Lord go down to the gates. And that was the place of assembly. And she said they're going to have a meeting. And instead of talking about what they talked about in the past, that which was sex, that which was peace, that which was love, and that which had to do with just the commonplaces of the day, that which didn't amount to anything, she says now they're going to talk about the Lord. And they're going to talk about the things of the Lord and the acts of God the righteous acts of God. My, this is a tremendous passage of Scripture, by the way. And then notice, as you move on down, verse 12, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song, arise. Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. Then he made him that remaineth have dominion over the nobles among the people. The Lord made me have dominion over the mighty. This woman, Deborah, after the victory, she tells this man, Barak, again, she says, take over. And he doesn't take over. And she had to continue as the leader. And she found she had dominion over the mighty. And out of Ephraim was there a root of them against Amalek. After thee, Benjamin, among thy people, out of Maker came down governors, and out of Zebulun they that handled the pen of the rider. In other words, the other tribes now join in. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, even Issachar, and also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley. For the divisions of Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart. But some of the tribes didn't help. And one of the tribes was Reuben. Reuben didn't send up reinforcements. Reuben wasn't there to give the support that they should have given. And they were a neighbor, and they were close by, and they didn't. And then there were others that didn't. Verse 16, Why abodest thou among the sheepfolds? 
to hear the bleedings of the flock. Reuben stayed with their job. They felt like that they should continue with their flocks. They couldn't turn them over to somebody else. For the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. They just stayed by and acted as if there was no war at all. They burned their draft card. They didn't come. And then verse 17, Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? He was busy in commerce. He didn't want to come. Asher continued on the seashore and abode him in the beaches. You know, human nature never changes. We're living in a day and have come through two world wars and the Korean War and now the Vietnam War. And these things that are mentioned here, they're very commonplace today also. We find that there are those today that have from the beginning. They went into big business. They didn't help at all. They didn't join in. Very candidly, I don't know about you, and I ought not probably to interject this here, but when I see some of these young fellows that are hanging around that burn their draft card, and I think about that fine bunch of young fellows, and I've had quite a few of them in churches I've served, that they went right to the front and some of them gave their lives. I just have to put it down, friends, that I feel like this woman here did. There's great searchings of heart. They let their country down, and they shouldn't have done that. Now we're told here Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeopard their lives under the death in the high places of the field. But there were two tribes that they really fought. Then we're told here the kings came and fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan and Taanach by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. Actually, they had some allies that were formerly enemies. They helped there at the waters of Megiddo. And this is up right near what will be Armageddon someday. Verse 20, They fought from heaven the stars in their courses fought against Sisera. And again... We have this before us, and I don't think we're looking here at poetic language in any way whatsoever, friends. My feeling is that it could truly be said that in this particular case, and what it means, of course, is that heaven, that God, was against this enemy. That's the thing that's very important. Then we're told the river of Kishon swept them away, that ancient river, the river Kishon. O my soul, thou hast trodden down steps. Then we come to one of the strangest verses, and here is what it says, verse 23, "'Curse ye Miraz,' said the angel of the Lord. "'Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty.'" Now, I very frankly do not know who Miraz is. I haven't any way of knowing, but there's one thing for sure. I wouldn't want to be Miraz, and I wouldn't want to be an inhabitant of that city, a Miraz. Notice the thing that is said, curse ye Miraz. They didn't come to help the work of the Lord. May I say to you that around us today there are multitudes of folk that are not coming to the help of the work of the Lord. This is something that's very important for us to see here. Now will you notice verse 24. Blessed above women shall jail the wife of Heber, 
the Kenite be blessed, shall she be above women in the tent. The heroine of the day was Jael, and not Barak, but the dastardly deed that she did. God doesn't approve of the deed. But this was a time of war and the aftermath of war, a holocaust of battle, broken bodies and the fruit of war, men's souls blackened and scarred, the foliage of civilization removed like thin veneer, snarled and gnarled trunk of barbarianism is revealed. And again, I repeated, Sherman was right about war. This woman, she did an awful thing. A woman's been made finer than the man. Never know just why they cry when they do. And there's something fine that's gone out of life today, by the way, and I think it concerns womanhood. Women, you notice, they cry at a funeral. That seems natural. Then they cry at a wedding. Maybe they know too much. I don't know, but I notice they do that. Then you find that this mother's heart in this song is revealed. She remembers that Sisera, though the enemy, and he was slain in this brutal way, that he had a mother. And notice this. After she extols jail for what she did, Verse 28, the mother of Sisera looked out at a window, cried through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariots? Her wise ladies answered her, yea, she returned answer to herself. She knew what had happened. He'd been slain. Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey to every man a damsel or two? To Sisera, prey of divers colors, a prey of divers colors, of needlework, of divers colors, of needlework on both sides, meet for the necks of them to take the spoil. And she thought all the time that her boy would be coming, and he didn't come. And even in this case, the heart of Deborah went out to her because she was a mother, you see. My, there have been mothers of the past, that have overcome handicaps of evil days, evil days like this woman Deborah lived in. Read the story of Augustine. He had a marvelous mother by the name of Monica who prayed for him. He was a debauched college professor, and he came to the feet of Jesus Christ. And then there was Susanna Wesley, and she had two boys that she prayed for, John and Charles Wesley. I'm not talking about worshiping womanhood or motherhood, friends, but I want to tell you we're getting very far today from God's conception of this. What a picture you have in Deborah here.